Welcome back. I'm Bobby Gonzalez, and this is Coronavirus Daily for Thursday. Is today Thursday? Yeah, Thursday, April 2nd. We've talked a lot about and heard from many of the heroes that have emerged amid the COVID-19 pandemic on this podcast. Doctors and nurses on the front lines, teachers and emergency first responders. But there's another group of people quietly working to help their fellow man through these uncertain times. Those in hospice care. Yelena Zadolovsky is the Vice President of Patient Experience at Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care. Her mission is to provide comfort for patients at the end of life and to keep them connected with family and loved ones, a task that has become increasingly difficult due to the spread of coronavirus. Still, Yelena and other hospice workers continue to perform their duties with care and gentleness and be of service to those that need them now perhaps more than ever. Yelena shares with Christina Pascucci the work that they're doing at Seasons Hospice and that how in these times of social distancing, emotional distancing has no place. So to start, I'd love to hear more about Seasons and a little bit of background on what it does. So Seasons um, is a hospice and palliative care agency. Uh, We have been around for 22 years. We have currently 31 sites in 19 states across the nation. And what we really do is support the end-of-life needs for chronically ill, terminally ill patients, um, their loved ones, their families, and their communities through both their care while they are still alive and living and also in the care of their loved ones and communities following their deaths so that we can continue to honor life and offer hope to everybody. Beautiful. And I was reading up on you and, you know, people think end of life, they might think elderly people, but you guys also deal with children who have cancer and just, you know, pretty much people from all walks of life. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, illness does not necessarily, sadly, only affect the elderly population, though that's the way we wish it were. Um, We do have multiple programs that serve a pediatric end-of-life population. um, And what we have been noticing over the course of the last few years and just in hospice in general across the nation is that there is a younger demographic for people who have um, advanced illnesses like cancer-related diagnoses or potentially other degenerative diagnoses. So at a time like this, which is already, you know, in your line of work, people are going through a whole gamut of emotions. And I mean, it's really hard to, to even imagine. Can you take us through how this moment in time has impacted what you do and, and your patients? I think the best way for us to take a look at this is um, twofold. You know, we, from a hospice perspective, from caring for an end-of-life population, our first priority is still the safety and the well-being of our patients, their families, our staff, and and the communities, and ensuring that we still find a way to create that tranquil, supportive, spiritual environment, regardless of the larger national events that are happening. And so... 
there are, of course, feelings of, as we're all trying to um, be more socially distant, to flatten the curve or to quell and stop the spread or other such language, there are, of course, experiences of people feeling a disconnection from others, that sort of human contact. And our population, our end-of-life population, is no different than that. And so some of the things that we've been doing as a team, as a national agency, is really um, reminding folks and creating platforms where the idea of social distancing or the idea of spatial distancing, which is really what it is, is not the same as the idea of emotional distancing. And so there are lots of ways to continue to create emotional connections and using our creative juices, using our experiences, always serving a population that has been very vulnerable throughout the years of feeling those senses of isolation. Um, we've really stepped forward to be able to take some of those creative ideas to continue to support not just our patients and families, but the communities at large. And how do you do that? Um, what are some examples and are there any specific examples of like clients? Um, I know with health laws and everything, you've got to respect that, but... Yeah, absolutely. We have a a tremendous um, number of experiences and stories to share. So, um, for example, we have had, um, and just to give you a specific client experience or patient experience from earlier um, this week, we had a nurse visiting with a patient um, where there were heightened restrictions for good reasons in a facility, um, and understandably so. And um, sadly, in this scenario, the family um, could not be present. And in fact, they couldn't be present not because they the, of the restrictions um, that the facility or the, the way that the facility was trying to support the needs of everybody and maintain the safety of everyone, but rather it's because they were in a different state. So they couldn't travel across states' lines. This is not an unusual experience for us. Mm. Um, And so as this patient was being admitted to hospice care and our care, and the nurse was sitting at the bedside with this patient, um, we used some virtual platforms. We've been very fortunate with um, both yesterday's Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services relaxing some or waiving some of the regulations related to telehealth and, and health privacy laws. Um, So we were able to use uh, a virtual platform that still maintains a tremendous amount of confidentiality that was approved by the Office of Civil Rights so that we could have that family participate in that admission. And there was this moment in time when um, the patient's uh, family member had said, I really wish I could be there to hold her hand right now. And in that moment, the nurse just quickly leapt to it, you know, moved closer to the patient's of course, in their protective equipment, um, personal protective equipment, and said, you may not be able to, but I can, and held that patient's hand in that moment in time, said, you know, I'm a conduit for you right now, and please know that we will continue to be caring and loving on your loved ones oh. and on on this person for as long as they're here, whenever you can come here, whenever, whether you can or cannot, we will always include you in, and you'll always be a part of this care. Oh, my gosh. That just, that gives me chills. What a beautiful story. Us too. And so we've been able to use those platforms. We've been, um, we started doing some virtual trainings following some of those guidelines early on. Um, so even as early as early last week, we started looking at 
what are some of the platforms that would permit some of that confidentiality, increased confidentiality, of course, giving true informed consent to our patients and families when we're using a virtual platform for the visits, so that even if they can't physically be present in that space and time for whatever the reasons may be, that they can be emotionally connected and present in that space and time, and that way we can continue to follow everything that hospice stands for, which is patient and family-centered care, you know, being being a bigger team, including the patients and families in their goals and their wishes and honoring whatever their life is and their identity until that physical life ends. Mm. Can you give us a, a more of an idea of um, maybe what some of your patients are dealing with right now? I know you have so many amazing initiatives that you're you're doing, but just to kind of humanize it um, for us and give us that added perspective. Absolutely, and I think it's so different when you look at different parts of our nation. You know what different individuals are facing across the nation can very much be reflected in the experiences of our patients mm-hmm. um, and families. So, from a, a pers- personal standpoint. Generally speaking, um, there is the sense of, and this is not consistent, it's not 100% of the time for everybody, but there is this sense of isolation when you are closer to the end of your life than mm-hmm. the beginning of it. And so many of our patients are having that as a heightened experience now. Imagine that they are right now in a facility, being cared for in a facility where um, residents are no longer necessarily able to be brought into an activity space together so that that those events aren't necessarily happening in the bigger sort of social setting. Mm -hmm. So as for those individuals, some of the things that we've had is um, we have board certified music therapists in all of our programs. And so when the facility has um, said that it, it's permissible and also that we've worked closely with our partners in care, these various facilities where we serve patients and families, our music therapists have been outside those windows and they've been continuing to provide that musical connection and that way of bringing in joy in this period of what could be very much fearful for many mm-hmm. or anxiety provoking for many. In other scenarios, um, when they're, for example, a patient may be being cared for in their own home or in the home of a caregiver, of course, our, our patients and caregivers are being very mindful of, of some of those distancing rules. Obviously, not everything. We still are maintaining and supporting symptom needs when a patient has pain or anxiety or whatever else. Of course, we're right at the bedside to help support that and as are their their loved ones um, and their caregivers. But throughout the rest of the day, they might be separating themselves a little bit more. And so these might be things that are very unusual for our patients to experience. And as as they're starting to think about or process through the ends of their lives, um, to not be able to have some of those periods of connection, um, the physical touch can be very jarring um, and very scary for some. Others are enjoying it um, in a sense because they like their their their, their selfhood, right? They like being separated out. Their sort of the spectrum is very vast. They're like, um, finally, they're leaving me alone. <laughs> finally, my friend, my family can't come anymore. There's reasons why my friends can't keep coming in droves. Um, yes, <laughs> I mean it is it is it is. Um, I think the hospice and healthcare workers that are are have been 
supporting vulnerable populations for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think being on the forefront of supporting these vulnerable populations now is less about um, the the differences, but more about capitalizing on the experiences and the skills that we already have, mm-hmm. because we've already been going through sort of that spectrum of different emotions that patients would have um, at the end of life, the spectrum of emotions that the their caregivers would have at the end of life. The group that we feel is probably the most impacted in a, at least an emotional, psychological way is the community at large, especially those who have, are losing their loved ones or their loved ones are dying during this period of time where they may not be able to sit physically say goodbye mm-hmm. or where their loved one um, recently died and now our staff is trying to support them through the bereavement process and through their mourning and we are um, making only telephonic outreach or we're trying to get them engaged in virtual and so what that no- new normal would look like is severely impacted by that. Wow. And this is, this is a part of society that maybe many people don't think about in their day to day. You know, we're hearing about businesses close or, or people in the hospitals, but not like this, this part of their life. And so you have such a unique experience and, and perspective. What, what do you say to, what is your advice to the families when they, they can't reach them or how do you approach that? Well, we certainly look for opportunities where we can be that conduit like that nurse was um, on that very first day for that patient and family. Mm -hmm. So we look for the opportunity if we're already in that space, um, you know, if we're already providing the care directly hands-on, how do we find ways to virtually invite that family into that setting so that they can physically be open and and see that. But then there's all sorts of different things that they can do. They can um, create opportunities to make slideshows that that can then be shared by our partners in care and the other facility staff that we work with or um, with ourselves or even directly to their patients and the loved ones. creating all sorts of different kinds of legacy initiatives. There are lots of very wonderful virtual platforms. Of course, that does mean for some of our more elderly patients, we have to find a way to teach them how to use some of that technology. Some of them are really enjoying the process of learning a new skill. Um, Some of them are struggling with the process of learning a new skill. Um, Certainly true for all of us ourselves. Um, But, you know, really it's finding ways to memorialize um, and reflect and honor their love and for one another. And so it may be as simple as just saying, you know, make that call every day, make it a habit, make it a ritual, set it at a specific time of the day when you know that your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your daughter, your son might be awake so that um, you can make that connection with them every single day and just set it up or have those um, virtual happy hours or virtual brunches or Mm -hmm. virtual connections together. Um, Some of the other things that we've been trying to do for the community to encourage some of that behavior is we've been using our Facebook live events and virtual webinars to ensure that the community thinks through other creative solutions and ways in, in promoting the idea of emotional connection in a time of social distancing. So we've been doing that consistently for multiple weeks now, um, and we will continue to do that throughout this entire period of time and then, and then beyond that. 
Beautiful. What is, I'm curious what the average length of stay is for people who come to you. Ooh, that varies very tremendously. Um, as, as a general rule, the average length of stay for all hospice patients nationwide is still very low. It's usually in the 20 to 50 day um, mark, mm-hmm. which, you know, feels like there's so much that could be done if we were identifying eligible hospice patients sooner and being able to really focus in on the idea of living um, and not just dying. Yes, um, in a yes. little in, in that longer period of time. Um, we do generally speaking, when we look at our length of stay nationwide and, and remembering that we're serving about 5,500 patients a day, um, it's somewhere in the vicinity of about 70 days, 72, 76. It varies a little bit. Um, but we do have patients that are only on um, services with us for a 24-hour period or shorter. They come to us very sick, um, very close to the end of, our, of their lives. And in those scenarios, what we're really looking for is obviously the way to promote their comfort in whatever amount of time is left, but also looking for those opportunities to memorialize them for their their loved ones and their caregivers and their families. So we still will do a legacy initiative, like, for example, if a child dies, um, you know, cutting a lock of their hair and or making a footprint mold for them or similarly a thumbprint mold for an elderly uh, an elderly patient that we are caring for and turning that into a necklace or mm, wow. um, if we have a little bit of time and we have a board certified music therapist nearby and we've practiced all the good infection control processes that we're following by the CDC and the World Health Organization, then it could be something like um, recording that person's heartbeat and then setting that to a favorite song or music. Oh my gosh, that's powerful. So even even if it's a short length of stay, um, the hospice providers around the country and healthcare workers around the country are always looking for opportunities to find a way to make connections. So I'm curious also if, if people are listening right now and they're, their hearts are being called to this, they're hearing, you know, people in hospice, um, feeling that isolation. We know some of them want to be, want to be alone, but maybe the others who are craving connection, is there anything people can do to help? Are you offering like volunteer video calls or anything like that? Absolutely. I mean, we are still following all of the compliance and regulatory requirements. So, but we are happy. We are, we are actually feeling a flood of volunteers coming through and we love volunteers. Hospice was built on volunteers. It started by volunteers um, and the federal benefit as it stands continues to make a nod to that um, by asking and requiring volunteer support. So if folks are interested in participating and helping, we are, we are teaching our volunteers to make virtual calls. We are having um, volunteers participate in um, administrative things or even creative things like writing cards and sending those forward. There are so many different things that each of our um, managers of volunteer services and community outreach are helping across all those 31 sites to do not just um, that's standardized, but also something that's maybe really honors the community at large. Maybe it's 
as simple as um, cooking a, uh, you know, a barbecue meal and bringing little care packs to families if you're, for example, in Texas or the Deep South or, you know, so they're, they're also looking at these great ways for volunteers to help participate in their community and things that even honor their community. So we are always happy to take volunteers and you can um, sign up and for uh, volunteer information on the Seasons webpage, which is www.seasons.org. And there's a volunteering tab. Feel free. We are happy to have you. I love this. Okay. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we say bye? I think just the reminder, I know I've said it probably a thousand times, but I think just the reminder that for any of us, irrespective of whether we're um, an ill patient, um, whether we are a loved one or a caregiver, whether we are um, on the front lines at the grocery store and and being a grocery store clerk or um, anybody else who's supporting right now, Social distancing is not the same as as emotional distancing, and so any ways that you can do to promote that emotional connection, whether it's calling on neighbors or um, finding ways to even nod from a distance when you're going and getting some fresh air, um, just ways to continue to form community through this time is um, really important for all of us, and so just you know, all of these things where we're honoring healthcare workers and honoring all of these individuals outside, just remember to also take a nod and and thank somebody who's just smiled at you because it's just so important for us to keep this human connection going, even from a distance. That's such a good point. I've noticed on a couple of runs that I've been on during this whole fiasco, um, people are almost more internal and not looking outside of themselves as much or saying hi, but, but when you do say hi at first, they're almost startled. And then it, there's like this acknowledgement or appreciation, at least that's how I perceive it. Um, that yeah. forms across their face. So that's a really good reminder. Yeah. If you can make somebody smile today, you know, then, then the, we'll all be better for it as we continue through however long this, I like how you call that the fiasco or this <laughs> pandemic continues until we flatten the curve and we're able to start um, physically hugging each other again and seeing each other again. And just, just that it's a, it's a very simple little thing and it's, it's, you know, we'll, we'll continue to pass it forward and it'll be hopefully like a domino effect. So just remembering to take those moments of human connection, even if you don't know who you're passing. Yes. Yes. It's really important. I like this new way of greeting people that my cameraman introduced me to where you face someone and you put your hand on your heart and give them a little smile. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I'm going to pass that on to all of our folks. Please do (laughs) spread the word. All right. Thank you so much. We appreciate you and the work that you do. Uh, It's it's truly special. And it was an honor to talk to you about this. It's really a pleasure. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about what we're doing today. More Coronavirus Daily tomorrow. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also find us at ktla.com slash coronavirusdaily. Thanks to those of you who have left a rating and a review and who have shared this podcast. Doing so helps us continue bringing you this kind of content. If you have questions or stories to share, find us on Twitter at KTLA Podcasts, or you can reach Christina on Twitter at Christina KTLA and use the hashtag KTLA Podcast. For more up-to-the-minute news on coronavirus, visit KTLA.com or check the free KTLA News app. Thanks for listening.